Mark chapter 16. I'm going to read Mark 16, verses 1 through 8. Verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might come and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. They were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, Do not be amazed. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who has been crucified. He has risen. He is not here. Behold, here is the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, He is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And so would you be. And so would I. We'll talk in two weeks after the installation that possibly this is where Mark ended his gospel and the rest. Maybe somebody added later. Maybe it's Mark's ending. We're going to explore that together. A lot of your Bibles have verses 9 through 19 in brackets or parentheses or something with a footnote that says earlier manuscripts don't include these verses. So uh, hang in there for two weeks. We'll discuss it together. But if indeed Mark's gospel ended at verse 8, it would be a fitting ending to his gospel. Remember we said how many times Mark says they were afraid, they were astonished, they were amazed. It's been a thrill ride for three years with Jesus. Seeing things they've never seen before, hearing things they've never heard before, witnessing miracles, compassion, and preaching with authority like they'd never seen. A man standing up to the religious leaders of his day and reaching out to tax collectors and prostitutes and other sundry sinners. And then, in less than 24 hours, all their hopes, all their expectations of Messiah toppling the Roman government and establishing, reestablishing the throne of David gets dashed as they see their friend, their Messiah, their rabbi, their teacher, Jesus, the Son of God, arrested, tried, spit on, mocked, scourged, carry his cross, die, be pierced, taken down, wrapped in cloth and a hundred pounds of spices and myrrh and aloe and placed in a tomb. They're depressed. They're discouraged. They're in shock. They're afraid for their own lives. And a few women come on Sunday morning to honor Jesus by bringing more spices to put on his body, as was custom. And the last thing they're expecting is an empty tomb. 
even though they were told again and again and again by Jesus. It's exactly what would happen. And they see an angel. That in and of itself, I think, would floor us. But then to see an empty tomb and hear that he is risen. And they fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is not a natural occurrence. People don't raise from the dead. Even though Jesus had raised others from the dead, nobody Nobody has ever in the history of the world before or since raised themselves from the dead. This is astonishing news. It is the cornerstone of our faith. It is the pinnacle of our profession. It's not just that Jesus is the Son of God, but that He died for sinners and raised Himself on the third day. History has been filled with kings, emperors, potentates, celebrities, all claiming all kinds of things about themselves. But the one thing they all have in common is they all died. And once you're dead, that's pretty much the end of your celebrity. Oh, sure, we can talk about the legend and watch their movies and share the stories and read their books and maybe even their political philosophy may live on. But they're done. They've had their chance. They've had their 15 minutes They no longer can physically, literally, in bodily form, manipulate human history. And yet, one leader claimed he would do it, and he did it. This is the astonishing truth about the resurrection. Last week, we looked at seven astonishing facts about the crucifixion of Christ. Today, we're going to trump the seven and go with ten astonishing observations about the resurrection. For whatever reason I'm trying to put my finger on, I got a huge outpouring of encouragement from last week's sermon. It really cut across all demographics. Maybe it was the outline. It was easy to follow. For some it was, I saw things about the crucifixion I had never seen before. So, (laughs) let's stick with what works, and we'll do ten astonishing observations about the resurrection, all beginning with the letter C. Like, I'm going to ride this horse till it bucks. (laughs) Whatever's helping get the Word of God into your hearts and minds, I'm all for it. So, number one, an astonishing claim. I've covered this a little, but let's back up to Mark chapter 10, where Jesus makes this claim. He tells his disciples he is going to die and rise again three days later. It's really the tipping point of Mark's gospel. It's the hinge. Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus sets his face like flint towards Jerusalem, knowing the people there want to kill him. But he's a man on a mission. Mark 10.32, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking on ahead of them and they were amazed. There's this word again. And those who followed were fearful. We could say afraid. Amazed and afraid. Astonished. 
trembling. These are the descriptions Mark gives us of everyone associated with Jesus. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. By the way, no matter where you are in Israel, you're always going up to Jerusalem. Not just because it's at 4,000 feet, but because that's where the Holy Temple is. I can't help myself. I tell everyone they're going up to Tehachapi, no matter where they're coming from. Not because it's God's country, but we're just we're higher than everyone around. If we're at 4,500 feet, right? I'm from Stockton. It's like practically sea level. So my parents are visiting this week. They came to first service, and I say they came up to Tehachapi for the weekend. But technically, they came down. He says, The Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. I don't know how you could be any more explicit. It's like a four-point outline. The sermon of the rest of Jesus' life. Here it is in four points. Five. Maybe six. Sorry. I kind of put mocking and spitting and scourging all in the same point. Nevertheless, Jesus is predicting his own death and resurrection. Anyone can predict their death. Jesus' miracles were impressive, but once you're dead, you can't do miracles anymore. This is an astonishing claim. Lots of astonishing claims have been made in history, but the deal is you have to back them up. The legend of Babe Ruth pointing to the fence and then hitting the home run, he backed it up. This is a hard one to back up, right? Because once you're dead, you're dead. He's saying, I'm going to lay down my life and raise it back up. In John chapter 10, before he raises Lazarus from the dead, he says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. He's speaking to the Pharisees here. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Let's get something straight here. We're not talking about suicide. As tragic and as sad as suicide is, that is not authority to take your life. Although some people in an act of desperation and depression want to take things into their own hands. This is not what Jesus was doing. It was a calculated event of laying down his life and then taking it back up again. Yes, certainly anyone can make a claim that I'm going to die on a certain day through suicide, or maybe you're at the end of your life and that's the day they're going to pull the plug. But to say three days later, hey, this is well past CPR, well past getting the paddles, I will raise my life back up. It's an astonishing claim. It's almost absurd and arrogant if it was anyone other than Jesus. 
And even though it was Jesus, we see that nobody really believed that this was going to happen. Nobody was expecting it. They didn't pay attention to his instruction. Why is this claim not only astonishing, but so important to us? If Jesus is really God, as he says down in verse 29 and 30, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. He's talking about believers, about the elect. And then he says, I and the Father are one. This is a bold, astonishing claim. It's equality with the Father. And the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. They were wanting to stone him on the spot for blasphemy. Jesus is making a claim to his own deity, at the same time making a claim to his humanity. It is the miracle of the Incarnation. Jesus being two essences simultaneously, 100% man, 100% God. It's one of those paradoxes that aren't paradoxical in God's economy. We don't try to untangle it. God cannot die, amen? But Jesus is God, and He died. He literally died. He physically died. The wages of sin is death. The penalty had to be death. The substitute had to die. A single man isn't an ample substitute for us. You can't just pick someone and they say, you know what, I'll die on your behalf so God will forgive you. It's not how it works. You need a perfect substitute. You need a blemish-free substitute. Only God can be perfect. By the way, for the, for the theology buffs, this concept of Jesus being fully God and fully man is called the hypostatic union. If you're a note-taker. Hypostatic union. They make you learn these words in seminary so that no one else can say these things so that you can get a job as a pastor. <laughs> it's, it's... What's that? Job security. It's job, job. Every profession has their vocabulary and their guild in that so you can hang on to your job. The hypostatic union. Jesus raised others from the dead, but only God could raise himself. And yet the conundrum is, how could God die? He's eternal. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He had no beginning and no end. So you could see why the, San, the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees were so upset with him. How can you, a man, make yourself out to be God? But it's exactly what the Old Testament prophesied. Jesus says the Son does the exact works of the Father. So he's like, well, if you don't believe in this, just look at the works I'm doing. I'm doing things that only the Father could do. And that is what is so important about the resurrection is he's about to do something only God could do. Regenerate. Resurrect. But he's going to do this to himself. Jesus answered them, as they're about to stone him. 
Matt Sheridan went home, but talk about courage. You know, you know people are about to stone you, and you give this as your answer. I have shown you many good works from the Father, so for which one are you going to stone me? You know, was it the time I fed the 5,000? Or maybe it was the time that I healed a blind man on the Sabbath. Or maybe it was the time that I um, raised a little girl from the dead. So which one of these works are you about to stone me? You know, because in my economy, we would want that guy around. He sounds like a good guy to have around. And they answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you. Ironically, because the Pharisees were all about good works. And here's someone doing gooder works than them. But for your blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Now Jesus is going to catch them up in their hypocrisy. He says, is it not written in your law? I love that. That's, that's an insult right there in and of itself. You know, you're the keepers of the law. You pride yourselves in knowing the law. Isn't it written in your law? I said you are gods. This is a quote from a psalm. Apparently the Pharisees like to quote this psalm. Not to elevate themselves as gods, but in order to say those who prophesy on behalf of God, as far as you're concerned, as far as you're concerned, since we have the earpiece, we have the phone to God, the direct line to God, as far as you're concerned, I might as well be God as a religious leader, as a Pharisee. It'd be like me saying, Look, you guys can't interpret the Word of God. You can't read your Bible. So as far as you're concerned, I am the Bible. And so he says, if, if he called them gods to whom the Word of God came and Scripture cannot be broken, that's another insult to them. That was a favorite euphemism of the Pharisees. They would teach something, say it's on par with Scripture, and then say, and Scripture cannot be broken. You know, this was the whole point of the Reformation. The Word of God wasn't in the hands of the people, so they just had to take for granted whatever it was they were taught by the religious leaders of the day, and they would say the Scriptures cannot be broken. It says if you want to get out of purgatory, you've got to put money in the copper. Scripture cannot be broken. Well, they are the keepers of the Word. They know the Word. I don't know the Word. And so the Reformation was all about getting the Word of God into people's hands so that they could see for themselves what God was saying so they could worship God directly and not go through a human mediator. He says, if um, if Scripture cannot be broken, do you say of Him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said... I am the Son of God. In other words, he's saying, you guys take this prerogative of being like gods, but you can't even extend the same courtesy to me, and I teach better than you and do, do miracles. If anyone should be able to call themselves a god, at least it's the guy who acts like God, teaches like God, loves like God, If I am not doing the works of my Father, then don't believe me. 
But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, because of your hatred for me, because of your envy of me, then at least believe in the works that I do, right? Get, okay, get, get, put me aside for a second and just look at the works on their own merit. How does somebody feed 5,000 with just a few fish and loaves of bread? How does somebody raise someone from the dead? How does somebody walk on water? How does somebody give sight to a blind man who's been blind his whole life? How does anyone do that who's not of God? Now, we know what they answered in another place. They said he, he, he does it by the power of Beelzebub. Satan gave, gave him this power. Which is when Jesus then tells us about blaspheming the Holy Spirit. So they have every reason to believe Jesus is who he says he is, but because of their hatred and envy and jealousy, they refuse to see it. But he says, the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And they're about to stone him, but the Bible says he eludes them. Boy, I'd sure like to know more about how that happened. Did he supernaturally disappear? Did, did they just not see him for a second? Some kind of miraculous blindness? One of those questions you'd love to ask when you get to glory. You know, how exactly did that work? In the next chapter, when Lazarus dies, which is a fascinating story, and I know it's one of Nathan's favorite stories, because the scriptures say when Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, he said because he loved them, he decided not to go to them for two days. And you think it's a misprint in your Bible. Why wouldn't Jesus go to them right away if he loved them? Well, he waited for Lazarus to die. So he could raise him and they would put their faith in Jesus as the Son of God. When he does get there, he tells Martha, your brother will rise again. And Martha says, I know, <laughs> I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So the Pharisees have always taught that there will be a bodily resurrection on the last day. The Sadducees didn't teach in a bodily resurrection because they said it wasn't taught anywhere in the first five books of the Old Testament. And that was their authority was the Pentateuch. Remember, Jesus said to the Sadducees, then why does God say the father of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as if they're still alive? If there's no bodily resurrection, then why does God refer to them in that light? Embarrassing the Sadducees and showing that the Pentateuch does teach in a bodily resurrection. God's the God of the living. So Martha knew that there would be a bodily resurrection. She just thought it would be on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. So it's not just that God's going to resurrect believers on the last day. Jesus is saying 
The whole resurrection depends on me. In fact, it's so closely associated with my death and resurrection that he says, I am the resurrection and the life. There's no resurrection and no eternal life apart from being affiliated and associated with Christ's death and resurrection. It's not just that we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, it's a package deal. You must believe Jesus is the Son of God, that He died for your sins and rose again on the third day. When you evangelize the lost, you can't just say, do you want to accept Jesus into your heart? You've got to tell them what that means, that you admit you are a sinner, to repent from your sins and accept Jesus as the Son of God, that He died for your sins as the only atonement for sin, and that He was raised on the third day. This is the way in which we should present the gospel. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. Only the bodily resurrection of Jesus is ample proof that he can make good on this promise. If someone came to you and said, I will die for your sins, trust me, and your sins will be forgiven, and they stay dead, what hope do you have that what he said would be true? You need some proof. Jesus gave us the proof. He gave us the evidence. He is risen in bodily form. If he said he could do that for himself, and he did it for himself, then certainly he can do it for you and for me and for all who believe. So we spent a lot of time on that first C because that is the most important point. It's an astonishing claim, and he made good on the claim. In spite of the fact that he made this claim and made it again and again, and demonstrated that he had certainly the power to raise other people from the dead, we see an astonishing confusion surrounding the resurrection. An astonishing confusion. Nobody was expecting this to actually happen. You would think that his followers would have been waiting near the tomb on the third day. Where are the apostles? Does anyone know? They're hiding. They're afraid for their own lives. They're depressed, dumbfounded, utterly confused and clueless about what to do next with their life. They put all their eggs in this basket and someone tipped the basket over and crushed all the eggs. Now what do we do? They killed him. They're going to kill his followers. Remember all the talk about who gets to sit on the left and the right? Forget that. We'll be lucky if we get to sit at all. The women are just grieving because they love Jesus so much and they're doing what women do after a death. They go into 
take care of all the arrangements mode. It's cathartic. It's it's like okay, we just gotta we gotta plan the memorial service, and we're gonna go buy the spices, and we're gonna go anoint the body. And if it was today, they'd be planning some kind of potluck at the church, right? Because that's what we do when we're overcome with grief and shock and astonishment. We just do what the next thing is. So they go to buy spices, but they can't go on Saturday because it's the Sabbath. No shopping on Saturdays back then, ladies. They have to wait till Sunday to buy spices. By the way, Jesus was already spiced up. Nicodemus, remember Nicodemus from John chapter 3 who met Jesus at night because he didn't want to be found out, wanted to know how to inherit eternal life, how to inherit the kingdom. Jesus said, you must be born again. And then we get John 3.16. That Nicodemus went and bought a hundred pounds worth of aloe and myrrh met with Joseph of Arimathea who offered a tomb and had bought a grave cloth. You know, yards and yards and yards of grave cloth. Don't just think a sheet. This isn't the morgue. This is somebody they loved and somebody they honored. They'd wrap the body in the grave cloths and then anoint the body and the cloths with aloe and myrrh. This has already been done before they put him in the tomb. So the ladies are just, they're coming to add more spices. They are not expecting to see an empty tomb. But they had heard also Jesus say that he would rise in three days. Nobody's expecting an empty tomb. It's the last thing on their minds. It's astonishing confusion. If they were listening, they should be waiting to hear the good news. They should be going to the tomb expecting to see a risen Savior. I wonder how often you and I get so caught up in our agenda that we completely miss out on what God clearly said He's going to do in His Word. If you become my followers, expect persecution. Expect trials. Expect Suffering. Health, wealth, and prosperity is not on the menu. It's like going to the restaurant and asking for lobster and it's not on the menu and then being upset. Well, why not? If anyone wants to follow me, he must deny himself, pick up his cross, deny himself daily, die daily. This is the Christian life, dying to self. So often we are walking around with false expectations. God delivers exactly what He promised and we miss out on it. There was a resurrection and we're focused on death and disappointment. Jesus planned the greatest event in the history of the world made all the arrangements for a great party, let everyone know what was going to happen, when it was going to happen, what day of the week, what time, and everybody showed up for a funeral. Is that you this morning? 
you're missing out on everything God is doing, all the wonderful things He's doing, because you're so caught up in what you think He hasn't done for you. Looking in Luke's Gospel, I won't read this whole section, but when you get down to the end of Luke 24, the women come back to report to the disciples that the tomb is empty. And look what it says in verse 11. But these words appeared to them as nonsense. And they would not believe them. Shut up. He did not. I don't believe you. Yeah. What do these women know? You know, they're, 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 they're a little crazy. They're a little upset. I understand. It's exactly what Jesus said he would do. And the angel tells the women, remember, he said he was going to do this. Go tell Peter and the apostles. He did exactly what he said he was going to do. And then he tells them, tell them to go meet Jesus in Galilee. And they never do go up to Galilee. Jesus ends up meeting them in Jerusalem. In the meantime, Matthew gives us a picture of what was happening just before the resurrection. It turns out there's an astonishing conspiracy. This one really floored me the more I thought about it. The Pharisees hated Jesus so much and so envious of him, they remember he said he would rise. On the third day. So he goes to Pilate. They go to Pilate. On the Sabbath. These are the people who say, we shouldn't do anything on the Sabbath. How dare you, Jesus, heal people on the Sabbath? They go on the Sabbath to conspire against God. It's the ultimate hypocrisy. They were not even supposed to affiliate with Gentiles on the Sabbath, let alone the rest of the week. And they go right into Pilate's palace. And they call him Sir. And you know they don't respect him as Sir. They call him Sir and they say, We remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I am to rise again. Talk about the pot calling the kettle black, that deceiver. These guys have been deceiving people through the whole gospel. Therefore, give orders, they're telling Pilate what to do, (laughs) sir, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, he is risen from the dead and the last deception will be worse than the first. Then we'll have a big mess on our hands and you'll be in trouble with Caesar. And so he says, okay, here's a guard, right? Take him, seal the tomb, that means put on the wax, stamp it with the signet ring. Anyone who breaks that seal, that is a capital offense against the Roman Empire, punishable by death. And keep the guards out front. Pharisees are so blinded by their hatred of Jesus that nobody stopped to say, like we saw before, remember the one from the Sanhedrin who said, hey, wait a minute. What if this guy is from God? Why don't we just wait and see? If it's not from God, the whole thing will blow over. But if it is, you don't want to be on the wrong team. Well, they're so blinded now in their hatred that they're not even listening to to logic or reason. Because what should they do, right? 
seal the tomb, put the guard there, but wait, just in case he rises on the third day, let's just wait. On the fourth day, we can say, see, the guy was a sham. He was a scam artist. But we really haven't seen the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the Sanhedrin do anything intelligent or logical or rational. That is what hatred does to us. It blinds us. The bitterness just absolutely blinds you. You think you see what everyone else doesn't when in truth you don't see what everyone else is seeing around you. You would have thought one of the Sanhedrin would say, wait a minute, we can't go to Pilate on the Sabbath. That would be hypocrisy. It says they all went. Fourth, we see these astonishing couriers, because angels begins with A. Couriers begins with C. They're messengers. That's what a courier is. They're bringing a message from God. In fact, uh, an angel is a messenger from God in the Greek. That is the translation, messenger. They have this message. We already read the message, but I find it absolutely astonishing that an angel came to announce to the world that Jesus was going to be born, and he announced it to a Mary. And another angel came to announce Jesus' resurrection to a Mary. Good to be a Mary in the Bible. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was then pegged by her community as a fornicator because she was not yet married, but with child. Scandalous that an angel would come to such a woman. And the first woman the angels appear to when Jesus is resurrected is Mary Magdalene, prostitute, a redeemed prostitute. This is not the way we would write the script if we were writing redemptive history. The angels, the night of Jesus' birth, proclaim the Savior has been born to a group of lowly shepherds keeping watch over their lambs. And then the first people the angels appear to when Jesus is resurrected is actually the guards keeping watch over the Lamb. The irony is the shepherds are keeping the wolves away from the lambs out in the field. The guards are keeping the good people away from the Lamb. People who need to know that Jesus is alive. So an angel, a courier of God, announced Jesus' birth and his resurrection, but Jesus announced his own death. Right? It is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus made his own announcement because he willingly gave up his spirit on the cross. Remember, he decided when he was done.
5, we see... uh, You know what? I have another slide for astonishing couriers. We find out from Matthew that the angels came in the middle of the night just before Mary got there and appeared to the guards. The guards fell as if dead. They roll back the stone. By the way, Jesus was already resurrected before the stone was rolled away. The stone was not rolled away for Jesus to get out. It was rolled away for people to come in. Resurrection isn't resuscitation. It wasn't heavenly CPR. Remember, he was bruised, bloodied, scourged, beaten, kicked, spit on, crown of thorns, emaciated, dehydrated. And I can tell you as a year as a nurse's aide that after a body perishes, whatever fluids are left inside have to come out. One of my jobs to prepare bodies after death. Even though he was carefully wrapped in cloths and, and all the spices are put on him, this, these grave cloths are saturated in, in nastiness. In the resurrection, our physical bodies, supernaturally, the molecules somehow reconstitute and are reunited with our spirit. Cremation, dismemberment, decapitation, doesn't matter. Man was made from the dust, to the dust he shall return. God made man out of the dirt and then breathed life into man's nostrils. You have a loved one who died in the Lord in some kind of horrendous accident and they were severely disfigured. Don't worry. They're getting a whole new body. If you're in the Lord, you're going to get a whole new body too. I know for many of us that is great news. I'd like to be a few pounds heavier. <laughs> Can I have some of yours? Thanks, Terry. I don't really think what we look like will matter that much to us. We'll just be so overloaded with grace and love to be in the presence of the Lord. In the meantime, this astonishing cover-up happens. A cover-up. The guards, they're like, "Uh uh-oh. We're in trouble. There's no body. This is exactly what we were sent to do, and we failed. It says in Matthew 28, 11, while they were on their way, that's the guard, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priest. So they go right to the chief priest, not to Pilate, not to whoever was in command, not to the centurion. They said, what do we do? The body's gone. And the Sanhedrin, they don't say, how could this happen? What happened? Was he really risen? There's a, that should be the first question. 
Maybe he really was who he said he was. Instead, they bribe the soldiers with money, and they say, here's what you're supposed to say. Say his, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Yeah, right. That's, that's an executable offense for these Roman soldiers. But they said, don't worry. If this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. We've got Pilate in our back pocket. Don't worry. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed, and the story was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. The Pharisees, we know Jesus likened to the older brother and the prodigal son. Again, the most astonishing, most amazing, most wonderful thing in the history of mankind has happened. Messiah has come, he died, and he is risen, and they don't want to come into the party. Just like the, the older son, sitting out in the field. Not fair. And they come up with this dastardly lie, this deception, because they don't want anyone else going to the party either. So much good God is doing. And we get so caught up in our bitterness that we, we miss out. Miss out on the wonderful things God's doing. I, I have the vantage point as pastor to hear what's going on in a broad swath of the church. But before I was a pastor, you realize that your circle of friends is, is, is very small and your world can really shrink down, right? And you can start to think something's wrong with the world, something's wrong with my church, something's just, you know. And everybody else is celebrating and you're, you're out there. I say enlarge your circle. Enlarge your circle. Find out what God's doing. Ask to hear testimonies. God is doing so much in our community. So much. Don't get upset about the one thing that you think he's not doing. These astonishing uh, grave cloths, that's number six. Astonishing cloths. Okay, so there's a pile of cloths in the tomb. What's so astonishing about that? How did he get out of them? Remember, he's tightly wrapped in these claws and they're saturated with myrrh and aloe and bodily fluids. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, if you go two slides later, he tells Lazarus to come forth and the man who had died came forth bound hand and foot with wrappings and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. The, the man needed help getting out of all of that. If you're going to steal a body in the middle of the night, you're not going to take the time to unwrap a hundred pounds full of stinky, soggy, fluid-saturated cloth. You're going to do a scoop and run like we used to say in the ambulance business. I also used to be an ambulance driver. A scoop and run. In fact, before modern medicine, the ambulances were also the coroners. 
station wagon, and you would just scoop them and get them to the hospital as fast as you could. Scoop and run. That's what you would do if you were going to steal a body in the middle of the night with Roman guards all around. Jesus' physical body supernaturally just passed right through the cloths, right through the rock. He was out of the tomb before the stone was rolled away. The, the scriptures are clear about the chronology here. There's another C, an astonishing chronology. He was gone before the door was open. Resurrection is a supernatural event. Don't try to make some kind of natural sense out of it. It's something God can do. He made the whole universe out of nothing. He can, he can pull this off. Well, how's he going to do it? What's it going to look like? What's my, don't get all caught up in what it's going to look like. Although Paul says, look, whenever something dies and the new thing comes, like the flower, it's like better than the original. So our resurrection bodies will be better than the original. Seven, an astonishing discollaboration. I could just say an astonishing collaboration, but it's really like a discollaboration. You would think that if people are going to make up a story to start some kind of movement, some new political philosophy, some new religion, start a revolution, they'd all get together and make their story sound exactly the same way. But if you read all four gospel accounts of the resurrection, you get kind of a slightly different flavor of each. It's almost kind of like shakes your faith for a second. You're like, okay, is there one angel or two? Did Mary go in first or did they all go in? And then you're like, "Uh, I don't know what to do with this. You can harmonize the four stories, but it takes some time. It is widely held among biblical, widely held belief among biblical scholars, just not any biblical scholars in this church, that Mark wrote his gospel first, and Luke and Matthew copied Mark's gospel and then added some extra stuff. Although the church fathers say Matthew wrote first, then why would Matthew need to copy Mark's gospel? Matthew was. A disciple, he was there. Why would he need to talk to a guy, by the way, who wasn't there and had to get his information from Peter? doesn't make any sense, but for many Bible scholars, they want to take the supernatural work out of writing the Bible, so they need some kind of theory. Okay, if that was the case, if Mark wrote first, and then Luke and Matthew copied Mark, and then John later copied Mark, why are all four of their stories different? There are places in your Bible where you know some stories match up word for word. Why the most important story, you get four slightly different accounts. To me, this strengthens my faith when I think about it more. If you were making up a story and had to make up a story, you would get together and collaborate and make sure all your stories were exactly the same. This is authenticity. When I... When there's a calamity in my house and I interview my four witnesses, the stories are kind of the same, but not so much. And at the end of the day, it's always Aaron's fault because he's the baby, right? You know. This is an astonishing discollaboration. It's, uh, nobody would write the script this way if you were going to stage a coup. This is not how you would write the script. 
we also have an astonishing corroboration. So Jesus said, look, I'm going to die and I'm going to be raised. What would you expect Jesus to do to prove to the world that he was actually raised? What would you do? I would appear to as many people as I could find, and I would start with the Sanhedrin. I'm back. (laughs) Told you. And yet he appears to these women first. Why? Because they loved him. They loved him. We know that in ancient times, the testimony of women wasn't even permissible in court, so why, why have women corroborate your claim that you've come back to life? And then why appear to these two men on the road to Emmaus? And why not appear to the Sanhedrin or Pilate? Why not stay here on earth right now and, and just, you know, go on TV? Appear to everybody. Do a, do a selfie, not to be sacrilegious, you know. But I'm just saying, get it out to as many people as you possibly can. Well, the Bible gives us answers to these questions. First of all, Jesus said, I have to go to send the helper. Jesus, in his humanity, can only be on earth at one place at a time. Not to take anything away from his divinity and his omniscience and his omnipresence. But part of being fully human is that you can only appear in one place at a time. Whereas the Holy Spirit can enlighten all of our hearts. If the plan seems like it wasn't a good plan, let me tell you this. At last count, there's an estimated 2.3 billion Christians on the planet right now. Don't know if they're all, you know, legit. But that's one-third of the population, and none of them have seen the risen Christ, though we've heard reports of people in far-off countries seeing Christ in a vision. But none, none of them have physically seen Jesus, and it doesn't seem to be stopping the movement whatsoever. In fact, it seems to enhance it and accelerate it because it's all by faith, and that's a regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Remember what he told Thomas, doubting Thomas? Thomas says, not till I see him, not till I touch him. Jesus said, go ahead and put your hands in the wounds. Thomas said, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus says, Thomas, you saw and believed, but blessed are those who don't see and believe. That's us. You see with your eyes of faith. And that's exactly why Jesus didn't go and present himself to the Sanhedrin. Just picking out this passage from John 10, 26. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them. Even if Jesus appeared to them because of the hardening of their heart and their disbelief, they would not have accepted him as the risen Savior. Maybe a ghost, maybe an imposter, who knows? It's not that people aren't coming to Christ because we're not good enough evangelists, we're not clever enough in our, our uh, mode of evangelism. It's all by faith. Yes, we evangelize, and that's the next C, an astonishing commission. Jesus then, when he does appear to the disciples, gives them this great commission, which is astonishing because they thought Jesus' purpose was to do what? Overthrow the Roman Empire, which is pretty 
pretty aggressive agenda. But Jesus says, no, that's small potatoes. Here's my agenda. Take the gospel to every creature. Four corners of the earth. And that is what exactly what is happening. And it just started with 12. With the 12. And look, look where it is now. Finally, an astonishing culmination. This is where we wrap up this resurrection. It is the foundation of our faith. It's the cornerstone. It's the pinnacle. It's we shouldn't wait till April every year to talk about it. Or March, wherever it happens to fall. You can't understate the importance of the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith also is in vain. And skipping down to verse 19, If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. If you're hoping in Christ to give you your best life right now, you of all men are most to be pitied. He's offering something much bigger, eternal life, a resurrection body and relationship with God for all eternity. Paul says in Ephesians 1, the astonishing power of the resurrection. He prays that we would know that the very power that raised Christ from the dead is dwelling inside every believer. This amazing resurrection power is in you because the Holy Spirit is in you. It is the Holy Spirit who regenerated Christ. I thought Christ regenerated Himself. But Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one in the Godhead. Yes, the Holy Spirit was the agent, but you can't separate the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He said the Father and I are one, including the Spirit. That Spirit, Paul says in Romans 8.11, the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. This is the astonishing applications where I'll leave you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So you're going to get a resurrection body after you die. feel like a salesman. Here's what you get. You get a resurrection body and you are no, under, no longer under any obligation to live according to the flesh. You can now say no to sin. You don't have to say, I can't. Well, you're right. You can't. But the Holy Spirit living in you can. You can say no to the flesh. You can die to your sins. You can die to the flesh. You can say yes to life. You can say yes to the courage to admit where you sin. You can listen to others who come to you and say, let me point something out in your life. There's no fear of man. No more envy that other people have it better than you. You don't have to get all caught up in this life as if there isn't something better to come. Stop living life as if this is all there is. O death, where is thy sting? And you don't have to wait for heaven to start living as if you have eternal life. Start living eternal life now. Joy of the Lord, humility, love for God, love for others. This is the power of the resurrection. This is the message we can bring to others.
Yes, the wages of sin is death, but Jesus died for us and didn't stay dead. It's not the final word. We praise, we worship, we serve a risen God. Let's pray. Oh, God, we are so thankful that the tomb is empty. We know we would just be like those in the Bible. We would be in shock and awe, trembling, amazed, astonished, confused, bewildered. We know this is what the Bible teaches, and you've made it truth in our hearts by faith. And yet we confess we have doubts. Oh, Lord, erase our doubts. Strengthen our faith. That you indeed are alive and you live inside us. Remind us of our testimony the day you converted us and how everything changed as proof that it is no longer us who live, but Christ lives in us. Lord, may we be bold and courageous, encouraged to encourage others to live in the power of the Holy Spirit and stop living like dead people. Lord, that we be encouraged and empowered to talk to those who do not yet have saving faith in Christ that they can know what will happen after they die. Because Jesus rose and was seen by many. Lord, do all this for your glory and work in us that this would be our greatest joy, our greatest desire, that the things you love will be the things we love. So they won't be duty and they won't be out of obligation or payback, but out of complete freedom to live out our inheritance of eternal life. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.